If you have your Bibles, uh, take them, please, and turn to 2 Kings. It's about a third of the way through the, from the beginning of the Bible. Uh, 2 Kings chapter 2. And as you're turning there, uh, some of you might be able to see from wherever you are that we've got three pictures that are around the drum set. If you were part of our Good Friday service this past year, you would have noticed that we did an illustrated sermon uh, based on the three hours of darkness. And uh, Peggy Burkowski did uh, these uh, drawings for us as we actually spoke. And so she's given us the three drawings. We're not sure where we're going to put them. Uh, we've got a few ideas in mind, but one is the drawing of the darkness. Uh, second is the Christ as he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And the third event was when the veil in the temple was rent in two. You can come up and have a look at them after the service. Um, if you're at home on live stream, too bad. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, they're here for, for you to have a look at. If you have your Bibles open, I'm going to read all of chapter 2. And uh, I think it will make sense to you, or I hope it will make sense to you when we finish it. Second uh, Kings chapter 2. Now when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. And the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he answered, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Then Elijah said to him, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the sons of prophets also went and stood at some distance from them. And as they both were standing by the Jordan, the Elijah took the cloak, rolled it up, and struck the water, and the water was parted to the one side and to the other, till the two of them could go over on dry ground. When they crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what it is I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please, let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, You have asked a hard thing. Yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it and cried out, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. He took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him, and he struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted in one side to the other. And Elisha went over. Now when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him opposite them, they said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. And they said to him, Behold now, there are with your servants fifty strong men. Please let them go and seek your master. It may be that the Spirit of the Lord has caught him up and cast him on some mountain or into some valley. And he said, you shall not send. But when they urged him, 
till he was ashamed, he said, send. They sent therefore fifty men. For three days they sought him, but did not find him. And they came back to him while he was staying at Jericho. And he said to them, did I not say to you, don't go? Now the men of the city said to Elisha, Behold, the situation of the city is pleasant, as my Lord sees, but the water is bad and the land is unfruitful. He said, Bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went to the spring of water and he threw the salt in it and said, Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So the water has been healed to this day according to the word Elisha spoke. He went up from there to Bethel, and while he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, Go up, you bald head! Go up, you bald head! And he turned around, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore forty-two of the boys. From there he went to Mount Carmel, and from there he returned to Samaria. Father, thank you for your word. Would you give us ears to hear? Would you give us hearts that are humble before it? And would you give us a will to obey a warning you might give, an encouragement you might give, an exhortation you might give? Thank you for your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe that's the first time you ever heard that passage. I read the whole chapter because it's important, first of all, as we set our, um, our, our sights on it, that we understand that it's meant to be understood as a unity. It all goes together. I've been telling us last week, at least I introduced to us last week, that we need to understand that the Bible is God's story. It's His story about what He's doing in this world. And we are not out there living our stories in which we find bits and pieces of the Bible which we apply to our lives. Rather, we are to find our place in God's story. And it helps when we know that His story is made up of those seven main parts that we looked at last week. It's made up of creation. It's made up of the fall. And then we have the Old Testament promises that come to us that point us to Christ. Then we have Christ in the Gospels. Then from the, 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 the ascension of Christ to His return, we live in the New Testament age or the time of mission. At the end, there is the account of judgment. At the end of that, there is the new heavens and the new earth. All of this world is wrapped up in the story of what God is doing here and what He's going to do as His story comes to an end. And so it helps us to have that in mind when we come to this particular text. Because this could sound like a bizarre story from the Bible. One of the ways, though, that we know it's a unity, and one of the reasons why I read it all, is because of the geography of the Bible. You might have noticed as I read this, there's very clear markers about where they came from and where Elisha went back to. We have in these verses this journey that has taken place that started with Elisha, as, or Elijah, as he left the Gilead or Gilgal area, he made his way down to um, Bethel, and from Bethel he went down to Jericho. From Jericho they crossed over the Jordan River together, and then uh, Elisha was taken up to heaven, and Elijah retraced his st- or Elisha retraced his steps. He went back over the Jordan River. He went back to Jericho. He went back to Bethel, and then he went back to Mount Carmel and into Samaria. So this text is meant to be understood as a unit. It's tied together by geography. And therefore, when we think about the story of the well water or the spring water being made whole at Jericho, and then of the 42 young boys that were mauled at Bethel, they aren't just random stories placed in this text. 
Rather, they are part of this unified whole of chapter 2 of 2 Kings. I think, secondly, the geography reminds us that the succession of Elisha is now proved. Because Elisha retraces, does the same miracle that Elijah did at the Jordan, and then he retraces his steps from Jericho to Bethel and back to Mount Carmel and uh, into Samaria. Secondly, about these verses, it helps us to understand and to think this through that, that the obvious is they are put between 1 Kings 1 and 1 Kings 3. Now, if you read 1 Kings 1, it ends with the account of the death of Ahaziah. And then 1 Kings 3 picks up with the succession of Joram, a king. And if you read all of the book of Kings, it's just made up of the history of kings. One king dies, another king succeeds him. That king dies, another king succeeds him. It's a history book of the kings. And so out of nowhere, we have this particular chapter dropped in. You could easily read one, uh, 2 Kings 1.18 and go to 3 Kings chapter 1 and you wouldn't miss a beat. So we have to ask ourselves, well, why is this chapter placed in here? Why is this account of Elijah and Elisha put in the Bible at this place? How does it fit in God's story, the story of the Bible? And remember again, I've said this before, that the story of the Bible is history. It's his story. And so what I, I think some of the things that help me understand is this, that spiritual realities can sometimes be lost in the day-to-day living of our lives. We can live in a world, and we do. We, 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 we go to work, and we, we live with our marriages, and we have our children and our grandchildren, and we get caught up in elections, and we get caught up in viruses, and we get caught up in political intrigue, and we can lose sight of that fact that this is God's world, and this is God's story. And so this account here, in part, helps us help remind us that we live with spiritual realities, that God is at work in this world in which we live on a day-to-day basis. And we're reminded that these two worlds converge in people. In this particular instance, they converge in the prophets, that God has called prophets to be the covenant police, so to speak, that would call people back to their relationship with God and to their roots with God when they go off in sin and rebellion. And so God uses people to remind them of spiritual realities as we live in this physical world in which we find ourselves. These verses are a recalibration, so to speak, of the story. It's a a way that we can get our bearing in the bigger story of God. This passage is moving us towards Christ. And you might say, well, how? How? Christ isn't even, even mentioned in this text. I didn't hear hide nor hair from him. I didn't even think of Christ when you read this text, Paul. Well, remember, these verses and this part of the Bible is part of the Old Testament promises where God promises that he will send a Savior, ultimately, who will deliver us from the world in which we live. It would have been impossible for the first hearers of this story to not think about Moses and Joshua. They would have automatically gone there in their heads at the time when, 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 when Joshua succeeded Moses and they come to the Jordan River and it was overflowing its banks and they thought, well, how are we ever going to get in the promised land? And you remember, the priest carrying the ark, they go up to the Jordan and as soon as their feet touched the water, it parted and they crossed on dry ground. 
And so this story would immediately serve as a reminder of a time that God acted in a miraculous way in the people of God back through Moses and Joshua. It's also, there's connections here between uh, Elijah and Moses. Moses died and his body was never found. Elijah's body was never found. Moses died on the other side of the Jordan. Elijah died on the other side of the Jordan. And so you think, well, what is God up to? Well, it's not only meant to look us backwards to see the pattern that God is beginning to develop and remind us as he tells us about what he's doing in the Bible. By the way, Joshua means God saves. Elisha means the Lord saves. So there's a pattern that we find in God's story in the Old Testament. We find that God is working in a saving way through Joshua to bring the people out of the wilderness and into the land of promise. Here now God is continuing to work in a saving way through Elisha, his prophet, who will call the people back from their sinful, rebellious ways back to God himself. There's a pattern here, a pattern of God has not forgotten us, a pattern that God is a covenant God. Even though we live in a messed up world and even though we find ourselves following sometimes, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the one I love. And God keeps calling us back. But we can look ahead and we can see the same pattern in God's story. And we look ahead to John the Baptist and Jesus. And we know that John the Baptist is referred to as Elijah, returned or come back. Is it possible that we are meant to see Jesus as Elisha? That the parallel that is looked backwards to Moses and Joshua is now meant to take us forward as those who live in the New Testament age to see a parallel between John the Baptist and Jesus. And I think we are. Remember what Jesus' name means? God saves. Joshua, God saves. Elisha, the Lord saves. Jesus, God saves. And do you remember where Jesus' ministry began? At the Jordan River. And do you remember when Jesus came up out of the water, what happened? The Spirit of God came to rest on him, and they saw the power of God come to rest on Jesus. And there was a time when Jesus was doing his thing, and John the Baptist is not sure who Jesus is, and he sends a bunch of disciples, and he sends them to Jesus to ask him, are you the one that we should be waiting for? Is there somebody else to come? And Jesus says to them in Matthew chapter 11, verses 4, he says, Go tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. Clearly, Jesus is referring to Isaiah 35, 5-6, to and in Isaiah 61, 1. But when giving the answer to John, he adds two things that aren't contained in the Isaiah prophecies. That lepers will be cleansed and the dead will be raised. Well, do you remember what happens in the life of Elijah? If you don't, we'll come to it. Nahum was covered with leprosy. And he was sent to, to uh, Elijah because a little girl told him, God can fix that. He can heal that. The God of Israel, my God, can do that. And the story goes and Elisha tells him to, to bathe in the river Jordan. After a while, he does that and he's cleansed of his leprosy. And then there is the time when 
the, the widow uh, has a child and that child dies and Elijah prays and the child is raised. Jesus is referring those two stories. And I think what he's doing is he is saying, I am carrying on or I am among the pattern of Elisha. And then there's the story in Elisha about a hundred men who were hungry. And there was just a few loaves of bread and Elijah was able to feed them. And miraculously, they all fed and there was leftover. And then there's the story when Elisha dies and he's thrown into a grave and another guy dies and they take his body and they throw it into the grave. And as soon as he touches the bones of Elisha, he comes back to life again. And do not we come to life because of the empty tomb? And so there's a pattern that's being established. And so when you see this text, it's part of God's unfolding pattern. It's a recalibration so we don't lose sight of the spiritual work that God is doing in saving us from our sins. God is sending the perfect Savior, Jesus Christ, His anointed one, His Messiah, who will deliver us not only from our physical enemies, from our spiritual enemies. And so it points back to a previous demonstration of God's power as Joshua, through the power of God, parted the waters. And it looks ahead to a final demonstration of God's saving work in Jesus Christ. And so that's why we, we need to just stop and get a picture of why is First, Second Kings chapter 2 where it is in the Bible. It's not just a randomly thrown in hunk of scripture with some good stories. So just a, a couple more observations about the text. It's, it's really about Elijah's last day. I remember preaching about this three years ago and uh, just fascinated by what went on in this last day, but I, I don't want to spend too much time there. The, the verse simply begins this way. The time had come for the Lord to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind. In other words, this is his last day on earth. This is the day when God is going to take him home. Notice, he doesn't go up in a chariot. A lot of our kids' stories and Bibles have a, has Elijah in a chariot going up there. He doesn't go up in a chariot. He goes up in a whirlwind. And there's this debate that takes place between him and Elisha and the prophets in, in the first six verses there. Three times we read that Elisha gives, or Elijah gives Elisha a way out. He says, you know what? Um, you just stay here, Elisha. I'm going ahead. God's sending me, but you just stay here. And three times, Elisha responds, no, where you go, I go. And it should remind us of another Old Testament story of um, Ruth and Naomi. When Naomi is going back to Bethlehem and she's sending her daughters back to their people in Moab and Ruth says to Naomi, no, no, no. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. And here we have Elisha basically saying the same thing. Your God is my God. I'm not leaving your side. I wonder, though, if what is also going on here is Elisha knew that he had been chosen to succeed Elijah. He knew that 10 years ago when he had been out um, riding his um, yoke with the oxen pulling him and this prophet guy comes up and he throws his coat on him. Everyone knew what that meant. But in 10 years, there had been no formal ceremony. There had been no affirmation that in fact he was to succeed Elijah. It had never been formalized in any way. And Maybe what Elijah is doing is he's wanting to give Elisha one more opportunity to, to really see, do you want this life? Has God really called you? Is this what you are, are wanting to do? Uh, no wife, uh, no home, no life, so to speak. Your life will be wholly given over to God. Is this really what you want to do? 
And three times Elisha says, no, God has called me and I'm not turning back. I will follow you until the day that you anoint me as your successor. As they come to Bethel and Jericho, these two groups of prophets come along to Elijah. They pull him aside and they say, listen, Elisha, do you know that today your master is going to be taken from you? Now, they don't know that he's going to die. They don't know that he's going to go to heaven. They just simply know that God's going to separate them. And I think that explains why at the, uh, a little bit later, they send out the search party. Because God hadn't told them that he was going to die or take them up to heaven. He just says they're going to separate them. And so they had a search party. But they knew that God was up to something. God had revealed it to them as they were in prayer or as they were in service. And so these verses simply tell us about those last hours of Elijah's life. And then they come to the Jericho or the Jordan River. And 50 sons of the prophets are watching these two men walk down towards the Jordan River. And they watched Elijah take off his cloak and roll it up. It, would have, it must have been a fascinating thing to watch as he rolled up his cloak. You know, we used to whip people at camp with our towels and stuff. Um, and they roll them up and wet them. And, uh, so he took his cloak and he took it out and whack on the river. And it parted. Dry ground. And he and Elisha walked across the river. Would Elisha succeed Elijah? Then Elisha, or Elijah asks Elisha, what can I do for you before I'm taken from you? And Elisha's response is, well, let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. To which Elijah replies, you have asked for something very difficult. I think it's important that we understand that Elisha is not asking for twice as much power as Elijah. He's not saying, you are good, but I want to be great. What he is saying is, I want my inheritance. Because if you go back into Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 17, the eldest son would get a double portion of the estate because he was tasked with the responsibility of managing that estate and looking after that estate and caring for it. And so what Elisha is saying is that, Elijah, you're my spiritual father. And what I want is my inheritance from you. I want to receive from you what God has given you. I want it in my life. Elijah was a spiritual father to Elisha. And Elijah's response is difficult. Because even though he knew that God had chosen Elisha to succeed him, there hadn't been a formal ceremony yet. There hadn't been a sort of a passing of the mantle, so to speak. And I think Elijah knew that God's gifts are not his to distribute. I can't go up to you people and, and any of you and say, you know what, have the gift of encouragement or have the gift of administration. That's not mine to give. That's God's to give. And so I think Elijah recognized that's not his to give that sort of thing. It's God who gives gifts to people. But again, I wonder if it's part of this, this recognition of the tough road ahead for Elisha. The call of God is not going to be an easy one. At any rate, this conversation ended, or the conversation ended, and they continued on. It says, walking and talking together. I don't know if you ever stop when you come to text like that and just, I wonder what they talked about. I wonder what, you know, did they talk about, you know, Elijah, did he turn to Elijah? That was pretty cool, Elijah. When you took your coat off and you whacked the water and it split right and left and there was dry ground. Maybe Elijah just began to reminisce a little bit about his walk with God. 
told him a little bit more about what he felt like and what it was like to be on Mount Carmel when he faced 850 prophets and maybe what was in his heart. Maybe what it was like to stand before Jezebel and feel the, the rage of her voice and see the fire in her eyes as she wanted to kill him. Or maybe what it was like to go stand before Ahab and say, you know, Ahab, it's not going to rain for three years. Maybe they talked about the fact that this was Elijah's last day and wondered what that would be like and, and you know, what would it be like to die and was he, how was he going to die? Was he going to get mauled by a bear? or what would, How was he going to go to heaven? He just knew that God was going to take up to heaven. But what would that look like? Maybe they just talked about it. Maybe Elisha said, you know, Elijah, I don't know if I can do this. I don't, know if I, can, I don't know if I can serve God the way that you have. And nonetheless, they're walking and they're talking. And suddenly, Elijah's lifted up by a whirlwind. It's like Elisha's caught off guard. Here, there's walking along and poof, off goes Elijah. My father, my father. And he saw him no more. And then we read that after some time. I don't know how long, but I don't know how high uh, Elijah was in the whirlwind, but, you know, a whirlwind. And all of a sudden, as Elijah's watching, he notes this thing fluttering down. And he looks, that's the cloak of Elijah. Flutters down, it flutters down. And he goes and picks it up. And then he says, I, I wonder, I wonder if this thing works. I wonder if, if the God of Elijah will be my God. Takes his mantle, wraps it up, goes to the river. Where is the God of Elijah? Maybe he said, where is the God of Elijah? I don't know. Takes this thing, whack, and the water splits right to left, and he walks across it. Clearly, the 50 prophets that were watching him recognized that there had now been a divine succession because they said the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they bowed before him. But they had no clue where Elijah had gone. They probably should have had a little bit of clue because Elisha comes over not only carrying the mantle, but his clothes are ripped into. A clear sign of grief and mourning. But they missed all of that because all they knew is that God had told them that Elijah was going to be taken from them. They didn't tell them that he was going to be taken to heaven. And Elisha could have settled the whole matter by saying, no, no, guys, don't go bother. I saw him go up to heaven. But he said, no, no, we're going to go find him. And so he says, fine, go. And three days later, they come back. And it's like Elijah simply says, I told you so. And uh, then the story changes from there. I want to point out three reminders from the text for us for the rest of the morning. Three things that as the people of God, I don't think we ought to ever forget. First one is heaven is real. Heaven is real. It's very easy in the world in which we live to doubt heaven, to deny heaven, to, to misunderstand heaven. We live in a world that is packed full of physical realities and more and more we are told to deny the reality of spiritual things. And yet heaven is real. Elijah was taken up into heaven by the Lord. And what heaven affirms, at least to me, is, is this reality that there's life after death. That when we die, that's not just all over. We're not annihilated. We don't go back to the ground and that's the end of our existence forever and ever. The Bible is very clear that when we die, we continue on. We are immortal. And for those who are in Christ, we go to heaven. 
and await the new heavens and the new earth where heaven will descend back on earth. Heaven is also the place where God is. It says, heaven is my throne, and from heaven God looks down upon the men and women on the earth, good and bad. It's like the control center of the universe. It's, from, it's the place from where God reigns and rules. It's where Christ is right now. Christ is in heaven, interceding on our behalf. He's praying for you and I every single second of our day. Isn't that amazing to know that when you go about your day, whatever you face, you might forget to pray. You might forget to pray for your kids, but Jesus is interceding for you at the right hand of the Father. It's where the saints are. If you've lost a husband or a wife or a son or a daughter or a grandmother or a grandfather and they have died in Christ, they are right now in heaven. They are with our Heavenly Father. It's an invisible spiritual reality. Once in a while, God opens our eyes, and we'll talk about that later, to see spiritual realities all around us. But heaven is another dimension. It's all around us even right now. So heaven is real. And when you read that text, stop for a little while and say, where was he taken? And what is it like in heaven? And what's going on there? Just read text after text that describes the reality of heaven. Remind yourself that heaven is real. The second thing is that grief is real. I think sometimes we want to bury grief. We want to deny it. But grief is as real as the death that causes that grief. I just want to point out a few observations from this text for us as God's children because if you have lived any length of time, you have experienced the loss of somebody you love. And sometimes we don't know how to deal with our grief. We don't know where our grief comes from. Well, I've got a few things I think that help me wrestle with grief and why sometimes grief is so sharp in my life. It comes suddenly. Death comes suddenly. It says that Elijah and Elisha were walking along and suddenly, and ESV says, behold. Every other translation that I looked at says, and suddenly, Elijah was taken up from them. In mid-sentence, almost. As they're walking along, he hadn't even had a chance to finish his question. hadn't even had a chance to give his answer. hadn't even had a chance to finish his story. And suddenly, he was taken away. So over three years ago, an acquaintance of our family and a friend of my three boys was talking to her husband on the phone, hands-free phone, as he was driving in the interior. And as they were talking, a car came around the corner and killed him as they were talking on the phone. Suddenly. Even somebody who we know is going to pass away, when they do, it's still a sudden reality. It's, it's, they're gone. That's why grief hurts so much. Because we're never quite ready for it. It's like a thief that comes and steals from us when we least expect it. Secondly, it creates separation. They were walking and talking and a chariot of fire with horses suddenly appeared and separated the two of them. The word taken is used three or four times in this text. That's what death does. It separates us. Not only does it come suddenly, but it separates us from the person that we love, from the person that we've had a relationship. It 
As I say, it feels like something has been stolen from us. The third thing about grief in verse 12 is it's often cloaked in shock. As Elijah watched, uh, or Elisha watched Elijah being taken up of the world, and he cried out, My father, my father, the chariots and the horsemen of Israel. Just as a point, it says that when the chariot came and separated Elijah and Elisha, it's chariot single. A chariot of fire and horses of fire. Here, as Elisha cries out, he says, the chariots, plural, of Israel and its horsemen. I suspect this is meant to be an epitaph for Elijah. It's later used as an expression also of Elisha when he dies. It's kind of like, what are we going to do? See, Elijah had been like a one-man army. He had been the go-to guy. He had stood alone against 850 prophets. He had stood alone in front of Jezebel. He had stood alone in front of Ahab. He was this one-man fighting machine for God. And Israel knew that, and Elisha knew that. And when he saw Elijah being taken out of heaven, he says, Oh no, the one-man army, the chariots of Israel, and the horsemen of Israel, they're gone. He recognized who Elisha was, and the power that he commanded, and the force that he was for the kingdom of God. He says, what are we going to do? How are we going to go on? How are we going to make it? Who's going to take your place? There was shock that settled in to his bones. As reading of Theodore Roosevelt, one of the presidents of the United States, he was a man larger than life. And Theodore Roosevelt died, and his youngest son wrote to his elder sons and said, the lion is dead. It's kind of what Elisha is saying. He doesn't, he's shocked. The lion is dead. The chariots and horsemen of Israel is gone. I think we know that death is real and we feel it or that grief is real because it's cemented in permanency. It says here, then he never saw him again. I think that's one of the things that that makes grief so hard to bear. That we never see that person again. There's a permanency to the separation caused by death. Our memories begin to fade. There's no new pictures to replace the old pictures that we have. Our earthly connection with that individual is forever severed. We will never see them again. Loved ones, this is why I can't stress enough, the most important thing you can ever do if you are a father, a mother, grandparents, have a spouse of a non Christian is tell them about Jesus. Tell them that the most important thing they can ever know is that Jesus Christ has come to give them life. Because then you will be assured that that separation that is so painful is a temporary separation. Because we know that there is coming a day when we will be reunited with those who've gone ahead of us. Years and years ago, Kath and I were listening to a James Dobson 
um, radio, it would have been a cassette, I don't know. Um, and he was just telling the story about how they were sitting around with their young kids one day, and they were just talking about heaven and what matters and what's important in life. And sort of the summary of the story was they said to the kids, you know, there is nothing more important that you be there if we go ahead of you. We want you to be there in heaven. We're going to meet you there. And my wife and I took that to heart, and we would go on trips. I remember going to Israel, and we would always redo our will. If you don't have a will, you should have a will. But we would always redo our will when we went away, and we always had a paragraph at the end that um, if we both died, whoever would do our will with our kids would read it out, and we would emphasize the importance that we've gone ahead, and we're in heaven, and we'll be waiting for them, and we wanted them to be there. And so when you come to the reality of death, it is cemented by a permanency. He never saw Elijah again. But it's not an eternal permanency for those who are in Christ. Oh, impress upon your children and your grandchildren and your spouse the importance of having a living relationship with Jesus Christ. The fifth thing, that we know about grief and its reality is that it's accompanied with sorrow. It says that he took hold of his clothes in verse 12 and he tore them in two. We really don't have symbols of grief in our world anymore. But this was an outward way in which individuals would demonstrate what they felt like inside. That when they tore their clothes, it was an outward demonstration that their heart was torn and that they were sorrowful. I remember a few years ago, I was called by a good friend of mine and asked if I would do this funeral sermon for his wife, and I said, sure. And I went over to meet him. I walked into the church, and he walked up to me, and I said, how are you doing? He says, you know, it feels like my right arm has been ripped off. Grief is accompanied sometimes by intense sorrow. And so all I want us to know is that grief is real. Heaven is real. Grief is real. Don't try and deny it. Don't try and ignore it. Don't try and minimize it. It is real. The third thing that I see in this text is God is real. God is real. Then he took the mantle that Elijah dropped and he stuck the waters and he said, where is the God of Elijah? I think sometimes we, we have a view that God is a God of eras, and so we have longing for great eras in history. Often it's eras of revival, and we think, well, God was particularly present and powerful in that particular time of history. But I want us to know that the power of God is not diminished by time. The power of God is not limited to one era or another. And the people here who read this story first or heard it first would have immediately gone back to Moses and Joshua and when Joshua parted the Red Sea and they would have said, of course, God was real. The power of God flowed through Joshua as they came to that river and as the river parted and flipped in two. Now here we are reminded again how Elijah and Elisha, by the power of God, smacked the river with their mantle and the waters parted. Loved ones, the God of 1400 B.C., is the same God of 850 B.C., is the same God of 30 
A.D., when God by his power raised Jesus from the dead. No matter how bleak it might be around us, no matter how dark the times might feel in which we live, no matter how awful the cultural realities are that we face, no matter how novel the circumstances are in which we find ourselves living in, no matter the place, God is real. And the power of God is real. And it never, ever changes. He is the same God yesterday, today, and forever. And God's power is not limited to individuals. It's not just found in Elijah as though once Elijah is gone, well, God is done. And I I think it helps us to remember that because it stops us from idolizing people then, from looking at people that God uses at particular times in history in great ways and and looking at thinking, what is God ever going to do because he's taken that person? God's power is not restricted to eras or to individuals. Singular. God's power is given to all of us particular. And that's why it's so helpful for us to remember where we are in the story of God's story in this world. Loved ones, we live in a different part of God's story. Now, we live in a part of the story which was talked about by the prophet Joel. And he says, look, there's coming a day when I'm going to pour out my spirit on all of humanity, on every man and woman, boy and girl. And Jesus said, stay in this city until you are clothed with power from on high. And in Acts chapter 2, we realize about the fulfillment as they were in this room. It said, then the Spirit of God came and it filled them all with power, men and women. Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in all the world. And when the apostles were explaining what happened on that day, he says, in the last days, this is what Joel said, I will pour out my spirit on all humanity. Where is the God of Elijah? He's in you and me today. He lives in us by the power of his Holy Spirit that has given us life. He lives in us by the spirit of Christ that dwells in us. We have the power of God in us. Paul prayed for the people. And he said that he hoped or he prayed that their eyes of their hearts would be enlightened, that they might know what is the hope to which he called you, and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. In another place he says that, he prays that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through the Spirit in your inner being. He prays in another place uh, that we might know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. And then he says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or imagine, according to the power that works within us. In another place, he says, His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. As we live in this world, he says, Be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Loved ones, where is the God of Elijah? He's in you and He's in me as children of God. How can I impress that upon us enough? God is not just the God of people in the Bible. He's not just the God of your mother or your father. He's not just the God of your grandmother or your grandfather. He's not just the God of somebody that you know and you look up to. If you are a child of God through the work of Christ, His power resides in you. God wants us to be in a relationship with Him. This is why He sends the prophets. This is why He ultimately sent Jesus. 
The story of the world is that we keep rebelling against God. We keep turning away from God. We keep going in our own direction. We keep saying no to God. But God is rich in mercy and grace. And God sent prophet after prophet after prophet to his rebellious people, calling them back, warning them of the ways in which they were going. Finally, he sent his one and only son who spoke perfectly what the father asked him to speak, who showed us the way back to the father so much so that he can say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the father but by me. God sent Jesus to this world to call us back to him, to call us from our rebellion, to call us from our sin, to call us from the darkness in which we live, to call us back into a relationship with him. Christ is his empowered servant. Christ is his final servant. God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. How will you respond to Jesus, God's final prophet? How you respond to Jesus matters. Because how you respond to Jesus is how you respond to God. Will you not obey God's final prophet today, Jesus Christ? Will you not say, I am tired of being at war with God? I'm tired of not sensing peace with God. I'm tired of living joylessly and fearfully and in guilt and shame. God has provided us with a way back to him through Jesus Christ. Follow him to God. Father, we come to you today. We're thankful for your word. We're thankful for your story. We're thankful for the reminder in this particular account that you're at work. You have a plan. You have a purpose. You want us to be reminded of the reality of spiritual things. You want us to be in a relationship with you and you made provision for that in Jesus Christ. Father, for those of us who know Christ as their Savior, may we rejoice. For those of us who don't yet, may we turn to him, look to him today and be saved. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.